This is Iron Sports. Uh, we're very excited to have David Marinus on talking about his new book, Path Lit by Lightning. David, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Absolutely, I'm glad to do it. Um, your book is on Jim Thorpe, and I just interviewed Jeff Perlman, who is working in, in his. He has a new book coming out on Bo Jackson. And when we talk about Bo Jackson, a lot of people are like, well, who is Bo Jackson? They're like, well, he was like Jim Thorpe before whatever. And people are like, whoa, they don't know. So after, we're, yeah. yeah, after. So we're really going back. And I just put Jim Thorpe's life in perspective. Um, 1950 was named the greatest athlete of the first half century. And then ESPN in the century of 2000, the 20th century said Jordan, Ruth, Ollie, Jim Brown, Gretzky, and then Owens and Thorpe. He was seventh. So just sort of put him in perspective in terms of his overall, uh, you know, athleticism and his. Sure. Well, all all of those rankings are kind of meaningless in a way because you can't really compare athletes from different generations because of the differences in training, in diet, in coaching, equipment, all of that. Um, but Jim Thorpe did things that were unparalleled. No one else had done them before or since. No one has won two gold medals in the decathlon and pentathlon, been an all-American football player, the first great professional football player, the first president of what became the National Football League, and a Major League Baseball player. Um, along with that, he was a great ballroom dancer and could play ice hockey <laughs> and even marble. So the guy could do anything and do it almost better than anyone else. Um, it, it was. It would be almost like Patrick Mahomes uh, won the decathlon and uh, also played baseball in the spring and was uh, truly exactly. amazing. That, you know, I'm glad you brought up uh, Bo Jackson. You know, Jeff is a friend of mine, and and we've talked about you know c- comparing Bo Jackson and Jim Thorpe. Bo Jackson probably could have done really well in a decathlon as well. You know, he just he didn't happen to do it, um, but. Uh, when people ask me who's the modern version of Jim Thorpe, I say probably Bo Jackson. Maybe Jim Brown, you know, who also was a great lacrosse player and football player and probably could have done anything. But there are very few people in that, in that, at that level. So he grew up in Oklahoma. He was uh, an American Indian. And your book yes. totally highlights the idea of that time when the wars really were over between fighting with the American Indians. But it was sort of like there was the Indian elders that wanted to keep their preservation, the reservations, those things. And then the American government that wanted to assimilate the American Indians. And he was sort of caught up in that whole battle between both sides of that. Yes, he was. At age 16, he went off to the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, where the motto was, kill the Indian, save the man. You're right. This is after the, the, the uh, Indian Wars, the genocide of the middle 19th century. Um, but the idea then was that the only way that Native Americans could survive was by being completely acculturated and assimilated into white society. And that's what these boarding schools were attempting to do to rid the Indians of their language, of their religion, of their culture, their heritage, cut their hair, um, dress them in the uniforms of the U.S. Cavalry, and try to totally assimilate them through that process. That's what the boarding schools did, and that's where Jim Thorpe was for the crucial uh, 
years of his adolescence and early adulthood. Yeah, you, I grew up in Altoona, Pennsylvania, so it was, I drove by okay. Carlisle all the time. And actually, when I was in Altoona, Carlisle had a great uh, basketball team. Billy Owens, Michael Owens, some players people remember from the NBA played. Oh, wow. at, yeah. yeah, played at Carlisle, and it was they were supposed to be Altoona was supposed to play Carlisle in the championship. Altoona had uh, Division One basketball players on their team too, and they never met. Uh-huh. They never they never met in the finals, uh-huh. but. So Carlisle, um, he's there at the school. He wasn't really athletic in terms of an a- athletes and everything, but you tell this story, whether it's true or not, about how they were jumping. It was almost out of like a Superman movie. There was high ju- right. They were high jumping, and the best high jumpers at Carlisle were there, and he was wearing his overalls and said, oh, let me try it, and he broke the school record, I guess, just in his overalls. You know, there are a lot of apocryphal stories about Jim Thorpe. That one happens to be basically true. Um, you know, I've documented that from enough different sources to believe it. Uh, you, you're right. He had this was 1907. Um, he had just come back from an outing working. Uh, they sent a lot of the, the young students to farms to work for for white families. He just come back from that. Um, he was in his overalls. He walks by the track, sees the bar at something at six feet or more, and nobody else is jumping it, and he clears it in his overalls. And the next day. He was in Pop Warner, the coach's office, and on the track team. And within a year, he was a star of both track and field and football, and it all took off from there. Yeah, but you mentioned Pop Warner. This isn't the Pop Warner League. This is actually Pop Warner himself was the coach of the team. There was a person yeah. named Pop Warner. And you talked about how we mentioned Carlisle. It's like, but Carlisle in those days wasn't just, I mean, they were playing Penn State. They were playing Michigan. They were playing Ohio State. They were at the top of the tops. Army, Penn, the Ivy League schools were the top. They were the elite yeah. of all, in all sports. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because uh, Carlisle wasn't exactly a college. It was an industrial school. But they competed against the best teams in the country. Um, in that era... Actually, a lot of the best teams were in the East Coast, which is hard to believe now, but Harvard, Penn, Yale, Princeton, uh, Army um, were dominant teams, and Carlisle played them all and beat them all decisively. My favorite uh, football game in Jim Thorpe's life happened in the fall of 1912 when uh, the Carlisle Indians played Army. You know, the Indians against the Army, and the Indians thumped them 27-6 to on a level playing field at last. <laughs> <laughs> that was, and he was the star player. He was a running. He played, of course, both ways. Was the star running yeah, back? Sixty minutes, and uh, and also played. I guess what you call linebacker in, in those. Or what was position would he play on defense? Really, you know, it was kind of a defensive back slash linebacker. The the uh, award for the best college defensive back is the Jim Thorpe Award. So he, he could do both of those things. He, he covered. You know, there wasn't as much uh, forward passing in that era. So uh, it, it was more involved of tackling, but, but he was a defensive back linebacker. Uh, and not only was he a great left halfback and a great defensive player, he was also a brilliant kicker. He could punt the ball 70, 80 yards. He was a place kicker. He won many games with his field goals and, and in that era, drop kicks. Um, so he literally could do anything on a football field. And then you mentioned in the book how he took two years off after he was named third team All USA and Carlisle. He then took two years off and just played baseball in the summers in yep. North Carolina, which of course came back to, to haunt him. But that was it just his ability to play all around sports, all different types of sports. Yes, and 
literally, uh, Ira, hundreds of college athletes were playing summer baseball for minimal pay, two bucks a day or $30 a month. And most of them, to keep their amateur status, were playing under aliases. Dwight Eisenhower, the future president, played under the alias Wilson in the <laughs> Kansas State League. There were so many uh, players playing under phony names in the Eastern Carolina League, where Jim Thorpe was, that they called it the Pocahontas League because everyone was named John Smith. So there was, no, and Jim Thorpe played under the name Jim Thorpe. He never tried to hide it. It was in the newspapers in North Carolina, you know, for both of those summers. Um, but then after he won the gold medals in Stockholm, uh, the story sort of broke wide open, and his medals were rescinded um, unfairly, in my opinion. Yeah, you mentioned how in 19, he went back to Carlisle in 1911, 1912 as a football player and was considered the yes. top football player in the country at those times. They didn't really have the Heisman Trophy or anything back then. Um, his team was, be you mentioned the one game against Army, his 1912 team just was beating everyone, like it had one, 194 to 7, so it was just dominating. <laughs> Uh, but just that was sort of cemented his uh, legacy as being the best best football player, and that's one people thought he's one of the top football players of all time. Yeah, I think that, that Jim Thorpe in 1912 probably had the greatest athletic year of anyone ever. Um, you could argue because he, that's when he won both of those gold medals in Stockholm, then came back and was the fabulous All-American football player on a dominant Carlisle football team that fall. And you mentioned about the Olympics. It wasn't like he just won a race or two. He had 15 events in the decathlon and the yep. pentathlon. In the pentathlon, there were five events. He won four of the five in the whole thing. In wearing the wrong shoes, everything, you know, what could go wrong? And he just was dominating uh, the entire thing. And the whole world got to see uh, how fantastic he was. Yeah, 15 events in about two weeks, um, which is, you know, draining. And he, he dominated in both of those both the pentathlon and the decathlon. Um, it's hard to compare that again with, with the past or the, you know, or the future, but, but he won by a larger margin than any decathlete uh, ever. And you're right, for a couple of events, his shoes went missing, and he, and he competed in unmatched shoes. He had to wear two pairs of heavy socks for one of the shoes because it was bigger, and he still won the event. Yeah, it was, your book it, it tells, I love the story, you have George Patton, I mean, all these famous people that were competing in those Olympics, and that Patton, right. you know, Patton was competing also, but it was just, and the fact that after the Olympics was over, and the King of Sweden uh, gave him the medals, and they gave these big medals, besides, you actually said it was the last time they gave gold medals out, and said, you're yeah. the greatest athlete in all the world, and that sort of set him on with the whole world, then realized how great he was. Yes, absolutely, and so, you know, uh, a year later, when he was in Major League Baseball, he was on the New York Giants, and they traveled the world with the Chicago White Sox. It was a world tour. They went to Japan, China, Australia, Egypt, and Europe. And there were a lot of famous players on those teams, and along with Charles Comiskey, the owner of the White Sox, and John McGraw, the manager of the, of the Giants, and um, Tris Speaker and Sam Crawford, two Hall of Famers. The rest of the world didn't know any of those people. They knew one player on one team, and that was Jim Thorpe on the Giants. He was the global famous person.
Oh, and you mentioned the book. He, they met the Pope. The Pope knew who he was. King George of yep. England knew wherever they went. Exactly. Uh, just, just a, what a tour. I think there was like four or five months. They traveled every country. We're, we're in Egypt by the pyramids. They were in Japan. They were in Europe. Uh, what a tour for baseball. I, I think baseball maybe should do something like that now in terms of spreading the game. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> Um, the you you touched on the fact that there was that scandal when it came out later about they took his medals and, and I just saw now in the media it's now that they they've restored everything to his wreck finally after a hundred yeah. some years they finally got around to it and I did notice that the the person was second place when they stripped him of his of his medals he said I'm not taking it he dominated me it was it was Hugo something and he goes Thorpe was so much better than me I I could never take the gold medal yeah Hugo Weislander of Sweden. Um, once they tried to give him the first place prize, he said, I don't deserve it. Jim Thorpe was the best uh, athlete. So he never took that gold medal. Um, and yes, 110 years later, 110 years too late, just last month, the International Olympic Committee set, set the record straight, made Jim Thorpe put him back in the record books as the winner of those gold medals. And then his baseball career. Now, when we're saying it was it was spotty per se okay you're the best yeah. football player in america you just won the cathlon and you also are playing in the baseball like you're playing major league baseball he had uh, it was up and down it was just not it wasn't he wasn't the dominant player in baseball that he was in football and he actually didn't start playing better until he was older or was playing in the minor leagues more yeah i mean he was better than michael jordan <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um you're right he, he i don't think that john mcgraw really gave him the opportunities to to show how good he could become. He did have trouble with the curveball, as so many great athletes do, you know, when they get into baseball. Um, but as I studied his career, um, he improved. And he had one really great season in the major leagues, playing for the Boston Braves in 1919. Um, he led the league in hitting for almost the entire year, was always good at stealing bases. And, you know, for that year, the sports sections in Boston, it was – Jim Thorpe on the Braves and Babe Ruth on the Red Sox. They sort of dominated the sports pages. And then after that, he was in the minors for quite a while and always hit over 300 after that. So I think it took him longer to develop as a baseball player. He was not as good at that as at football, but he became pretty darn good. And then we're getting ready for football season now. And, and to think that in 1915, there was teams like Canton and Oranga Indians and those things uh, that were playing. But he was the star player from 1915 to 1920 before what we know now know as the NFL. And when they came together in 1920 to form the NFL, they made him the first, I would say, commissioner, president or whatever, just to start the league. So he was there at the founding of the NFL and was the star player. Yeah, he started professional football in 1915 with the Canton Bulldogs when they were in the Ohio League, which was barely a league. It was pretty a ragtag outfit. Players could jump from team to team week by week, depending on who paid them more, um, which wasn't much in any case. Uh, pro football in that era was a secondary sport behind college football, behind Major League Baseball for certain, and even tennis and golf and boxing. Um, but Jim Thorpe was the name that helped the football, professional football rise. And, and they did make him the first commissioner or president in, tw in 1920, largely as a figurehead position. He was still a player coach at that time, um, but he was the person that everybody knew. And, um, you know, fo pro football 
historians say that Jim Thorpe's rise into pro football really helped the league um, become a major sport. Yeah, I mean, that was, it was certainly, I mean, to think what it is, I mean, you talked about, I had the stories, the little tidbits you had there, the fact that you could enter the league by paying $100, and I tell that to the right. Denver Broncos uh, owners, new owners <laughs> that paid $4.5 billion. Well, if you went back in 1922, you could have a team for $100. And then after he was done with football, I mean, your book, in it's The Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Just a dip, he was in movies and just did so many different things. Um, never got the wealth that you would expect that someone today oh. would ever had, but was kept himself busy doing lots of things. I would say. Well, you know, the, I think the most he ever got paid was maybe three hundred dollars a game in pro football, which was considered a lot of money. You know, you compare that to what are the contracts in baseball today? Two hundred forty million dollars or something. So yeah, he never. He never really had financial security. He also was overly generous, and he struggled with alcohol. Um, so, you know, the rest of his life was, was a constant struggle, but he never gave up. You're right. He, he, you know, he traveled from state to state. I think I document 20 states that he lived in. He took various jobs from, at one point during the Depression, digging ditches to then becoming very active, uh, you know, on the fringes of the Hollywood studios. Um, he acted in more than 70 uh, movies, you know, mostly in bit parts, sometimes uncredited. But he became the leader of the 200 or 300 Native Americans um, who were in Southern California and wanted to be in the movies. And um, so often the studios were casting white people and dressing them up in grease paint or war paint. And Jim Thorpe became the spokesman to say, hey, you know, let, let Indians play Indians. Yeah, I mean, it's just... I guess, and they had a, they had a movie in the fifties on Jim Thorpe that was yeah. you said that was some it was a questionable even though he was consulting with the movie it wasn't like you felt like it did not portray him as well as you would thought he should have been portrayed. Well, it was a you know, Jim Thorpe All American, starring Burt Lancaster, directed <laughs> by Michael Curtiz, who directed Casablanca. You know, so it was in some ways a, a good movie, and it was very sympathetic to Thorpe, but. Historically, it was wrong in every respect. You know, I mean, a lot of it was conflated, things that didn't happen. And what I had the most problem with it was that the narrator was not Jim Thorpe. It was Pop Warner, his <laughs> former coach at Carlisle. And the uh, implication of the narration was that if only Thorpe had listened more to, to, to uh, Warner and assimilated more better into... Uh, white society, he wouldn't have had the struggles that he had. And I found that to be very misleading. Well, I really, you know, your book is definitely bringing an appreciation towards him from a lot of people that that don't don't even, as I said, we bring up Peter who Bo Jackson is, let alone Jim Thorpe. So it's great that, uh -huh. and as you're going, the book just was released, it's available on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, everything. So I think for people who want to learn about the first, one of the first great athletes in American history, if not one of, the, if considered the greatest, your book is a perfect resource for that, and hopefully people will start appreciating more. Well, I certainly hope so. I run so far so good. I mean, it, it's, it's being... Uh, well-received and read. Well, most of you, I mean, you've had, you wrote books on Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Vince Lombardi, Roberto Clemente, so it's uh, definitely, it's in that genre of writing about uh, historical figures, and, and 
the the meticulous research you did on this, it's just very hard. I mean, because as you said, there's so much about Jim Thorpe that is more fiction than fact, and you have to separate yeah. the two. And it, it's hard to doing it when you're researching back saying over 100 years ago. It certainly is, um, but that's what I try to do. Um, you know, to, to explore both the man, the real person, and the myth. Well, David, I really appreciate it. I know you're very busy promoting the book, and thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports. Okay, Ira, great talking with you.